Okay, here we are. I should start out by saying that there is no lecture August 30th and September 6th because uh, Lori has a lot of work to do in order to get that downstairs area suitable for my sister to move in. We've got to get her property closed, and there's a lot of punch lists to do there. So we're going to take our usual break that Terithathy demands that we take. So ultimately, it's her fault, not ours. And we will be back on the 13th of September. Really quickly before I get started on this, I get, I, I get a lot of questions from people, especially recently and appropriately so, because Rosh Hashanah is coming on the 18th through the 20th of September. And of course, that's a feast day period and all feast days are significant. And uh, we always look forward to them because we know that uh, uh, Christ may do something incredible on those days. And this, this one will not be any different in the sense that there's a nation of Israel and there's a worldwide war that has occurred from 1914 to 1945. And then, of course, there's this uh, worldwide disease. And so we have all of these signs of Matthew, Luke 21, uh, Mark 13. And so this will make this one something to watch for. Now, the question that I've been getting recently is how, what will happen to the world? How will the world not know? And that's my opinion that Israel will know that the church is gone, but the world will not. And only partially uh, will Israel know. That's not to say that the Jews will all know because there's different levels of Jewish uh, criteria, if you will. There's apostate Jews, there's remnant Jews, there's Messianic Jews. So um, we have different levels and they will have different understandings, I'm sure. But Christ, of course, when he comes for to abduct the bride, abduct the bride, he's coming as the bridegroom. Um, and he is obviously the light of life. So that means that he has he is the energy of life. He God is the energy that provides all energy. So uh, when he comes, he has the uh, obvious ability to do it in a bright powerful, energetic way. He can literally shut down all communications all over the world just by his very appearance. And, uh, and that would obviously, in my view, be assigned to the sun as an electromagnetic pulse. But in any event, I expect the world to be thrown into a state of semi-darkness when he abducts the bride. And I think that's going to be one of the reasons that the world will not respond with knowledge. Uh, just That's just something that I'm throwing out, not necessarily true. I Maybe I'll defend it here in the weeks to come, which will not be the 30th or the 6th. So. Okay, August the 23rd, 2020, lecture discussion uh, number 114 on the book of Joel Daniel, Revelation Ecclesiastes, all one word. Previously, and previously is a relative term, so be alert to that. The lesson plan dictated the introduction of seemingly dissimilar content. Stuff just thrown in the air, hoping it lands on the dry erase board in some kind of cohesive form. That's been the plan lately. And so I had subjects from mathematics cannot predict free will. That's incredibly important. Mathematics cannot predict free will. What are the theological implications of that? It's incredibly important to understand that. Consciousness is not computable will fit with the fact that 
Mathematics cannot predict free will. Mathematics cannot predict consciousness. Uh, uh, in other words, consciousness cannot be described mathematically. And, and of course, there's ram- randomness and uncertainty in the universe. Those are subjects that I've thrown out recently, as well as, as Psalm 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, which we did a couple weeks back. Psalm 10 being prominent in that group of chapters, in my opinion. And uh, I tried to tie all of that back to the origins of pathogens. And you may not have been able to see how I made that connection. And the ashes of the red heifer was in that mix. The rods of Moses and Aaron, which we'll kind of discuss today. The body of Moses. The cursing of the fig tree and how it ties to the uh, cleansing of the temple. And then microbiology came in and immunology. Just to name some. Uh, Joel 1, 2, and 3, to name another. And obviously, my favorites are the theological implications of measurement. I like the theological implications of things. I didn't clean my glasses today. That could be unfortunate. But true measurement is impossible for mankind or angels. I made that statement. I hope that got through to some. That launches us back into Einstein's determinism and John Bell's inequalities. Uh, determinism in spite of Einstein's efforts. Oh, he loved his determinism. It was defeated. And his hope for predictability was replaced by probability. We understand that the universe, again, has randomness to it, uncertainty to it. And all we can do is get probabilities. And that's why our measurements are never precise. We cannot have true measurements because everything changes so quickly. Your measurement is out of date the instant you take it, if you want to think of it that way. So all we have is averages in our measurements and probabilities in our, in our assessments. And there are an immense theological entanglements to these quantum physics principles. Because Malachi 3.6 declares God's immutability. He says there, for I am the Lord and I change not. He doesn't change. That gives him an advantagement with regard to measurement. Okay, it gives him the ability to make true measurement. He is the only one. And immutability connects to timelessness. So I have true measurement, immutability, and timelessness. And all of that ends up in entropy at some point. Because time and entropy have a relationship. So these things I've put all together in a big pot and stirred it all up. We did not use throw a bat in that flew 600 miles from his indigenous area and drowned himself in a pot. My gosh, is that insane? Who believed that nonsense? It cannot possibly be true. And clearly it wasn't true. (sighs) Anyway, from last Sunday, eventually the irreversibility of measurement collides with the direction of time. In other words, measurement is not reversible. That means time is not reversible, in spite of all of the nonsense movies that we've had to endure. That literally, I like them, but they annoy me to the point where, where I get bitter. Because they're so stupid. There's no understanding of, of how things really work. But anyway, all of that define the restrictions on the creation 
created beings like us are locked inside of time. And that becomes prima facie evidence of a creator of time. And to kind of beat this around a little bit, to be immutable is to be outside of time. That's I am God, I change not. That means that he is outside of time. And uh, in order to be immutable, you have to have a frame of reference that is an authority over time and motion. And uh, you have to be someone... uh, If you have a frame of reference that is in authority over all time and motion, then that's, that person has the ability to accomplishment, accomplish. Sorry, I'm starting to stumble already. That person has the ability to make true measurement. And who alone says that he can measure all things? Who, who said that in all of history? Who said that he is the authority over all of time? Anybody say that? Oh, yes, somebody did. Jesus Christ says that. No one even knew the concepts existed for centuries and centuries. No one understood that Exodus 3.14, the name that he gave, I am that I am. No one understood what that name really meant. They just said, oh, well, what, a, what a cool name. And they graffiti it all over Seattle. I am that I am. The I am, John 8:24, John 14:6, 11:25 of John Revelation 1:8. No one even thought what that really meant except Christ defined it for us. And no one knew, no one applied it to immutability and timelessness because they didn't understand that it is an immutable timelessness name. I am that I am. Demonstrates immutability and timelessness. That's the name Christ picked for himself. Again, Exodus 3, 1, 14, and then, I'm sorry, 3, 14, and it's all over the Bible. He constantly says, I am, that I am. Usually your translations will just say, I am. Anyway, I, I digress rant. That's a new word that I have. Feel free to steal it. It'll show up on Tucker Carlson. I'm kidding about that. Digress rent. I think that it's going to catch on. New word. You heard it here first. I prom- I need to start writing. I'm waiting for somebody on... Uh, uh, and I, They haven't done it yet, but they're using my obvious question. Over and over and over again. I've been doing that before some of them were born. So I know that it is not them. Thieves? Do I get anything for it? Somebody send me a dollar for stealing stuff? No. Yes, it is. But if they ever say the most obvious of the obvious questions, well, then we're suing them. And the same thing goes for digressment. Anyway. We're going to endeavor to to begin today with Adam, Moses, and Jesus Christ. Because, oops, spelling is hard on a board. Adam is identified as a type of Christ in the Bible, specifically said he's a type of Christ, Romans 5.14. Moses, likewise, Deuteronomy 18.15. So right here, 
This sets them apart. They each get a verse that says to us, these two are types of Jesus Christ. These two become him. They are portraying him. And so that's an incredibly powerful thing to know. Uh, Both share this honor by Scripture. It's honoring. The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible through agencies that he selected. The Holy Spirit proclaims them. The, The triune Godhead proclaims Adam and Moses as types of Jesus Christ. That's what an incredible honor for them. And that is a level of separation because they have been so specifically identified. The others are, are there. They actually are true, but they're inferred. You have to recognize the typology. Here it is laid out for us. And that, again, a level of separation. And as there's omniscience involved in the one who selected Adam and Moses out specifically. In other words, omniscience... Uh, carries intentionality. God knows that he has said of Adam and Moses that they testify of him. And so he wants you to know, wants us to know how they represent him. In this case, the second person of the Elohim is being represented. Genesis 1, uh, 1, 1, 126, 322. This is the us. Look, man has become like one of the us. Adam has become like Jesus Christ. And therefore, we should take heed. We should comprehensively now evaluate Moses and Adam together as as two of one whole. And usually the approach, as you know, has been Noah and Adam. Because each one of them fruitful and multiply. But I'm making the case today as much as I can. I won't have time to do it comprehensively because I never have time to do it comprehensively. Is that Adam and Moses need to be stared at as a unit as you also know ultimately whatever we uncover whatever is assigned to Adam and Moses will apply to the at the highest level to Jesus Christ so if I find out something about Adam I should expect it to be something about Moses as well if I find something about Moses I should expect it to be something about Adam if I put them together they should add up I should see Christ himself so we should find it helpful to be bi-directional Multidirectional, pull the string or the thread from both ends. In this case, I, I would suggest to you that we pull backwards from Christ into Moses and Adam so you can look at Jesus Christ. For example, just categorize the elements that are revealed of Christ in the New Testament and then place them over the template that is Adam and Moses. Now, actually, Christ is the template, so you're taking the template, you're moving it upside down. So you can, you can do... Adam to Christ or you can do Christ back to Adam the reciprocation of it will work wonderfully for you so pick a subject in this case we're going to talk about the bodies and this will be a Jude 9 discussion the archangel Michael remember I brought this subject up quite some time ago and I have said all along as much as I can the resurrection of the body proves existence and I haven't quite laid that out for you other than giving you little pieces of popcorn as much as I can. I poured a whole bag of popcorn out one day and I doubt anybody really noticed. Jude 9, as you know, hopefully you know by now, 
And this discussion will be much to the delight of Susie and Valjo from Bakersfield. Hi, you guys. You thought I forgot you, didn't you? I have not. Okay, maybe a little bit, but I remember eventually if Lori hits me. Kind of like an old tube television. When we first got married, I had a pool stick because I had a misspent youth. And the way that we turned the TV on and off was with my pool stick. I had a busted one and I would reach out and I'd push the buttons. It had these little push button stations, essentially a control system. And I would reach out and change channels. And we had what, three channels, four channels? We would pull the, we get the TV set out of the horse-drawn carriage and bring it in. And we hit it with a pool stick. We lost the TV years ago, but we still have that busted pool stick, don't we? Did we throw that away? I cut a bunch of them up on the, on the, and much to her delight, I got rid of a bunch of pool sticks. Evidence of my misspent youth, as I said. Anyway, getting off base. This is a Jude 9 discussion. The archangel Michael contends with the fallen, anointed cherub Satan. So he is the anointed, the highest of all angelic beings. And, but he has fallen. And now the archangel Michael contends, contests with him. And they are, over, they are contesting over the body of Moses. So here we go. What does that mean I do now? That's right. I look at the body of Adam, the body of Moses, and I'm going to look at the body of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to ask, what are the similarities? Because there has to be similarities. There has to be similarities because Romans 5.14, Deuteronomy 18.15. And again, hi Susie, hi Valjo. Hopefully many of you, vast internet included, are already asking, how does Jude 9 connect Moses to Adam to Christ? How does it do it? Well, obviously through Genesis 2.7. Just put that one right on the board right off the bat. Genesis 2.7 is a connection. Pounding away at, at that. You can throw in Genesis 2.21. But in Genesis 2.7, let me just read it again because I've read it hundreds of times now on purpose. And the Lord God formed Adam of the dust of the ground. Now, I did not say man because Adam is almost always, and it is always, the proper name, Adam, is interchangeable with man in Genesis. And the Lord God formed Adam. So I'm going to make it specific because I think it is specific. Of the dust of the ground and breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. And Adam became a living being. Now I'm going to add some more commentary. Commentary. And the Lord God formed Adam's body. Obviously he did from the dust of the ground. So I now have Adam's body showing up in Genesis 2-7. And then, I'm sorry, and the Lord God formed Adam's body from the dust of the earth and then breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of the spirit of life that will return to God when the Lord God who gave it, return to the Lord God who gave it, when the body of Adam returns to dust as it was Then Adam became a living being. So notice my order. He breathed, he formed the body from the dust. He breathed into Adam's nostrils that breath, and that breath does return to him when the body dies. But the body did not become a living being until the breath of life was there. So that that is a co-administration of Genesis 2-7, and Ecclesiastes 12-7, which I think you would have recognized. And the point being, yea, a point being. 
There's a timeline here in Genesis 2-7. And it's critical. There's anatomy. There's a step. There's an order to it. So once I recognize that incredible order that's being revealed in the body and the breath of the spirit of life of Adam into a living being, I can now take it down and apply it to Christ. How does it apply? And I can also take it through Moses. Because it's going to show up in Moses. What shows up in Adam and shows up in Moses is showing up somewhere with Christ. Now, not in the same form. Christ's level of, of, of exposure of revealing these uh, significant scriptural truths is far more significant than we can even imagine. But time is critical. The order is critical. Don't get it out of order. That's a premise. Uh, Kelly Crump. Oh, I shouldn't say his last name, should I? Because they'll come after him for sure now. And they should. Uh, but he taught us all to say, you, if you don't go in order, we will tear it all apart and you'll have to rebuild it in order. And we would always get out of order as a little uh, irresponsible, uh, how do I put it, egotistical, we thought we knew better. We never knew better. We never, never knew better. And every time we thought we knew better, we were always wrong. We have to take it apart because we got out of order. If you get out of order in Scripture, if you don't notice the order... Chances that you fall into the ditch and bury yourself in mud uh, is very high. Understand that. Knowing the order in which Jesus Christ, the light of life, brought existence and consciousness to the body and the breath of life to the body of Adam. Genesis 1-3 and John 8-12. That's essential. So, what have we learned so far? Christ formed Adam's body from the dust of the earth. So what do we do now? We go and compare the formation of Christ's body to Genesis 2-7. So I have the formation of Adam's body and the formation of Christ's body, and I'm going to see how they, how they relate. First question. How much time passed in the formation of Adam's body? Did you think it was uh, seamless or rapid and simultaneous and quick? Is that what you thought? Or did God take his time? And if he did take his time, which I'm suggesting obviously that he did take his time, how, how long did it take? How slow would be the correct way to phrase it? Did he do it slowly? I'm suggesting he did it slowly. Why would I suggest that? Because there's an audience. There's always an audience. Especially there's an audience when he's making the replacement of the king of Eden. He did it slowly, in my view. So it could be witnessed by those who are watching. And obviously the latter is the case, in my view. He didn't do it quickly. He did it slowly. He made the earth in an order to be seen. God intended for the fallen and the unfallen angelic reign. reign Excuse me. God, this is why you have to wear masks in church. God intended for the fallen and unfallen angelic realm to see what he was doing and the order that he did it in because they knew the order had as much importance as the actual formation. He was explaining something to them because they're fallen. There's a lie out there. So ask those kind of questions. 
Any woo. What else did we learn, if I'm right so far? Adam's body lay there without going into corruption, didn't it? So he made the body. I'm going to propose he waited, what, seven minutes, seven hours? He waited for a period of time while Adam's body lay there. And there was no living being here. There's just a body. And and he sat it there and let it be watched. How long did he leave it there? And it could not go into corruption, could it? It could not. So that's not unusually at all, is it? Of course it is. Adam's body lay there without corruption for a period of time. Before Jesus Christ, who is the breath of life, Acts 17.25, installs that which makes Adam a living soul, a living being, a living creature. All of that's interchangeable, conscious. All of that's interchangeable. Again, how long did he lay there? Hours, minutes, you decide, lots of options. By now you will have recognized the Acts 2.27, Psalm 16.10. It's said of Christ, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So the body of Christ lay in the tomb, did it not, without corruption. The body of Adam, the first Adam, the last Adam, they lay without corruption. How long? There's going to be a relationship. In the length, one is three days, three nights, sign of Jonah. That clearly isn't the case with Adam. Maybe. And for those who wish to advance at a rate above the rest of us, add in John 29 and then ask, because John 29 says uh, they didn't know the scripture. They, the, the apostles were confused because they didn't know the scripture. So the question is, is what is the scripture of John 29? Is not revealed? Is it uh, Psalm 1610? Is it Luke 135? 135 is also involved no matter what, but I think um, I'll make the case for 1610 a psalm is the scripture that is uh, revealed in John 29 that none of them knew. If they had known 1610 of psalm, they would have had a much different response because the body of Christ could not go into corruption. Luke 135 describes Christ as the holy thing because they can't describe him. The body of Christ, the child The child body, if you will, is called the holy thing because there is no description for it. It is unimaginable to humanity. So the body of Christ is described as unimaginable and the body of Adam, I believe, is unimaginable to the angelic realm. Anyway, obviously the body of Adam and the body of Christ are intended to be compared, aligned. And I wish we had more time to do that today. I'm already out of time, aren't I? I haven't even got started. We started late. Okay, I'm doing the best I can. But now let's move on to Deuteronomy 34.7, 34.6, which is the body of Moses. It's Jude 9. Let's figure that into this. How does it work? Of Obviously upon obviously's. Steal that. I've got to keep changing it. Where is my uh, copyright? Uh, where is the Cliffside Legal Defense Authority? But obviously, God specifically impacts the bodies of Adam and Moses. With Adam, it's Genesis 2-7. He's personally involved in this, and everyone that is watching can see it. And of course, Genesis 2-21.
And twice Adam is in a state during which Jesus God either adds his breath or removes blood and bone. Flesh. Adam's body figures prominently. So I have two times where Adam is in this deep or this state of deep sleep, don't I? Twice. And deep sleep. How deep is the deep? Obviously, the first time he doesn't have a mind, a conscious mind. The second time the mind, I think, is this is the ultimate anesthesiology. How deep is deep? Extra credit question. Why does the body return to dust anyway? It came from dust, but why does it return to dust? Why not just annihilate it? Because dust is a disintegration, not an annihilation. Disintegration is temporary. Ooh, there's a clue. It's a temporary condition and it demands the omniscience of God to restore it. And this obviously is explanatory as to why God resurrects the bodies of living beings. It's part of the resurrection of the body tells you that existence is true. So, if I have Adam in this deep sleep unique territory, and I do, let's move on to Moses. Moses is impacted at Deuteronomy 34, 6 through 7. Probably should read that. Just to get people who don't know onto the beam here. As this is describing the death of Moses. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. Go back to verse 5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab. He dies on a mountain. He ascends up a mountain and dies according to the word of the Lord. So he dies according to the word of the Lord. Uh, what word is that? And he, God, buried Moses in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows his grave to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. That's what he says about Moses. So he is involved in the birth, if you will, the, the formation of Adam. And also he, God is involved in the death of Adam. Is he not? It may be over a period of time, but nonetheless it's the case as he is with all of us now. But with Moses, he actually has a different approach to Moses that brings Moses to a level again of unique territory. And though I should inject here that Jude 9 is probably in between most, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 34.7 and Deuteronomy 34.6. In other words, the order would be, the chronology would be Deuteronomy 34, 7, Jude 9, and then Deuteronomy 34, 6. That may not make any sense. So I have the death of Moses, and then I have the burial of Moses. But in between the death of Moses and the burial of Moses, I have Jude 9. So, as with Adam, Moses' body has special status. If that's all you get from me today, that's terrific. You have the special status of Adam's body, the special status of Moses' body, and they point to the incredible status of Christ's body. Or you can go backwards from Christ's body and find these vestiges, these portraits in Moses' body and Adam's body. Hopefully, that makes some sense. Moses was 120 years old. That's probably coincidental. Oh, wait, that's Genesis 6-3. Here's that 120 years ago showing up again. His eyes, to pound this in, were not dim. His natural vigor not reduced. My natural vigor is incredibly reduced. His was not. The scripture is definitive. Moses did not die from death. What? Okay, death by decay. He had no weakness. 
No diminishment. It's almost as if he's being preserved for 120 years. That makes him pretty unique. Of who else is it said that at 120 years he was not diminished nor dimmed? Now, you're going to come at me with with all kinds of Deuteronomy verses thinking that I have not thought of them. That would be an error. We'll get to that in, in a minute. So what did Moses' body die from if it wasn't death by decay? It was, it's death by outside force. Who provided the outside force? Who provided the force to bring Adam to life? Who provided the force to bring Moses to death? That's the point. Yay, a point. Another extra credit question. Why did his body die? Deuteronomy 34.5 So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moar according to the word of the Lord. Got to figure out what word that is. The word is also a person. And he, God, buried him and no one knows where his grave is. I keep repeating that because it's necessary. Once again, what have we learned here? There was no reason for Moses to die. No human reason, if you will. But Moses did die at 120 years exactly, which, of course, is a ridiculous coincidence with Genesis 6.3 or not. Moses' death, <coughs> excuse me, is immediately after God shows him the entirety of the promised land. How much promised land did he show him? A whole lot more than Israel occupies today. Ezekiel 47. Moses sees all of it. He's on a mountain. He sees all the way to the Mediterranean, the Great Sea. And Moses sees his eyesight clearly not dim. One can make the case that Moses' eyesight was in fact enhanced. When was it enhanced? How long has it been like this? Or did it just happen when he went up the mountain? If you say, well, his eyesight was just fixed when he went up the mountain, God became said, hang on a second, I'm an optometrist, I'm going to give you better eyesight right now, bang. Well, then what did he do to his body to make his eyesight like that? Can I just make the eyes better and leave the body alone? Does he do that? That's why I always ask, what did Lazarus look like when he came out of the grave? Did he have a limp? Have that wart in the middle of his face? How good a job does Christ do? Is the question. But he can see the totality of the promise of the Abrahamic kingdom of Israel. And most commentators, many commentators, okay, most, they've concluded that Moses was not allowed entry because of unbelief. They say he could not go in. He died on this mountain because of his unbelief. He's being punished for unbelief. Oh, well, I have a problem with that because Adam and Moses are clearly set apart. So if Adam or Moses had unbelief, then Adam would have to have unbelief. And you know what I think about that. And they cite... Overwhelming. You can't buy a commentary, I believe, that says otherwise. They cite Numbers 22 through 13, where Moses struck the rock twice with his rod. It's actually smote. He killed the rock twice. So the mosaic rod, remember we brought that up? I hope you remember. Thereby, by striking the rock twice or smoting, killing the rock twice, he disobeyed God's order to speak to the rock. God said, this time, when water comes out of the rock, you're just going to speak to it. You're not going to kill it. Last time he smote it. The old King James, absolutely perfect. The rock was smote. Moses had previously smote the rock at Exodus 17. 
And we all know that the rock is a portrait of Christ. If you don't know, you should know. And if you didn't know, that's too bad for me. It means I did a terrible job in my how many years now of my supposed so-called career. The rock is a portrait of Christ. Out of the smoting of the rock comes the living water that gives life. And he struck it in Exodus 17, and he was supposed to speak to it. He was ordered to speak to it. Smote the rock, again, killing the rock. It's the same thing and with the rod of Jesse. Oh, I didn't make a mistake. Isaiah 11.1. I substituted the rod of Jesse for the rod of Moses. I did not misspeak. The rod of Jesse is the name of Jesus Christ. He is 11.1 Isaiah. He is the rod of Jesse. Moses killed the rock with a rod. That rod represented Christ, even in Moses' hand. Christ kills Christ. Does that make sense? Well, of course it does. So now another question for fun. Is Christ symbolized by uh, the rod of Moses? Yes, he is. How about the rod of Aaron? What's the difference between the rod of Moses and the rod of Aaron? In which case, the killing of the rock by the rod would align with John 2.19 and John 10.17, where Christ says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have infinite power to lay it down, and I have infinite power to take it up. I added the word infinite because it is inferred and obvious. He is infinite. How much power does it take to raise up or lay down infinity? He's the only one that has that ability. By that, I mean he's in the Elohim. He's one of the us. That he do so is, is the agreement of the triune Godhead. Revelation 13.8, they decided this is what they would do before all things. The point being, yeah, point being, that Moses, Deuteronomy 18.15, incredible type of Christ, said so, given to us, at Numbers 21 through 13 is not unbelieving. He's not there. But he did not get. He did not get killed by God because he made a mistake at Numbers 21 through 13. Because it wasn't a mistake. It was an intentional act. He knew that he was killing the rock twice. He knew that that was heresy. He did it anyway. Why did he do it? Because he's a type of Christ. And he knew he was a type of Christ. But he also did it out of a reason that uh, is he, he was trying. I made this case many, many years ago. Moses, the most humble of all men in Scripture. That's how God defines him, describes him. Uh, uh, humility does not reconcile with disobedience. Israel, let's just go this tangent. Israel sought to kill Jesus Christ, did they not? But they couldn't kill him. Why couldn't they kill him? They never had a chance of killing him because killing God in the flesh is impossible. I just read the verses. The word made flesh, the last Adam, the God-man, cannot die from outside force. He must die from inside force. The God-man must lay down his life. It is the only possible way that he will die. No one can take his life. No one can take the life of the infinite God, who is life itself. Again, the light of life, John 8, 12, Genesis 1, 1. 
Moses, in my most humble of all the humble opinions that ever were humble, clearly expects the rebellious Israel to kill both himself and Aaron at Numbers 21 through 13. And so he decided that he would smote the rock twice, do something that was blasphemous, and God would allow Israel to kill him, and therefore he could retire from this ridiculously difficult job. That was his plan. He was going to sacrifice himself for the nation of Israel because he felt they needed a different leader. He and Aaron had screwed up enough that they were willing to abdicate, and God did not allow it. He did not allow them to be killed by Israel. Why not? Because Moses is a type of Christ and a type of Adam. God does not allow it. Deuteronomy 18.15. 18.15 Deuteronomy establishes that the death of Moses would not be possible at the hands of anyone. He wouldn't let them. He would forbid it. God alone must be the one who lays down his own life. The prophet, therefore, that is Moses. Again, the great prophet whom Moses is a type of. Uh, it's impossible. It has to be done only one way. And Mo- that means that Moses dies only by the hand of who? Christ. Only the hand of Christ would take the life of Moses because of the position that Moses was in. I see you. Thank you. I submit that this must be displayed in Deuteronomy 34.7. The prophet of God, Moses... The type of the prophet, Jesus Christ, dies in mystery. Because Jesus Christ dies in mystery. Now, I know that Deuteronomy 32, 48 through 52 comes into play at all, as well. In case somebody's screaming at the computer thinking I'm unaware of Deuteronomy 32, 48 through 52. And Deuteronomy 31, 1 through 6, which just coincidentally happens to be another 120 years. This is where, and I've got to cut it short because I got my the hands already went up in the back. God tells Moses, go up this mountain and die on the mountain, Nebo. And you're going to die just as Aaron dies on Mount Or. Because you trespassed against me. So what is the trespass that they did? They impacted the death of Christ. You did not hallow me, honor me, in the midst of the children of Israel which is the wife of God, the wife of the Lord, YHVH. And so what I want you to notice for today is Deuteronomy 32, 48 through 52 combines the death of Moses, the great prophet, with Aaron, the high priest. He puts them both together there. Both have titles that are assigned to who? Jesus Christ. He is the great prophet and he is the high priest. Jesus Christ, you see, has three offices. They are chronological to us because why? We're inside of time. We are restrained by time. We are locked into time. Therefore, we see them as sequential. Number one, we thought would come first and it did, the prophet of God. Number two, the high priest of God. Number three, the king of God. If you want to think of it this way, if you prefer God the prophet, God the high priest, God the king. The prophet phase ended at the ascension. The high priest phase is current. That's what we're in now. The kingdom phase is coming soon. Hopefully September 18th through the 20th. Well, that would be the abduction. Then we'd have a period of time. 
boy, once the abduction has come, I'm considering that the kingdom now. For today, note that both Aaron and Moses ascend up mountains to die. Christ dragged an execution squad of Romans up a, not a mountain, but certainly a hill. Both Moses and Aaron, Numbers 33, 38 through 39, Deuteronomy 34, 7, both of them go up at the command of the order of the Lord to die. He commands them. You're going to go up the mountain and you're going to die. Why? What is the cause of that that's traceable? The condition that is traceable to an occurrence. What occurrence is traceable to that condition, that event? Aaron is 123 years old. Moses is 120 years old. And I contest unbelief. I say, no, it cannot be unbelief. No evidence in my view that it's unbelief. Now, there is, if you wish, disobedience. Knowing disobedience. Not unknowing disobedience. But they knew they were disobeyed. It was a knowing act. They did it anyway. For the sake of who? The wife of YHVH. Remember, the Lord God knew Moses face to face. It defines it in that way. He knew him face to face. All of that illustrates the Adam-Moses relationship. Adam also died in disobedience, not in unbelief, because he did so for the wife. Obviously, God knew Adam face to face also, don't you think? I mean, Moses is described as the same manner that Adam would have also been described. But God did not describe Adam as face to face. Why not? Because it's obvious. Good grief. Uh, Michelangelo, I almost said Machiavelli. That's how old I am. How prone to. Michelangelo demonstrates this finger. It's not a finger, it's a breath. I like to think of it as mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. He breathed into the mouth and the nostrils of Adam. That's face-to-face. He knew him face-to-face. My goodness, it's It's clearly obvious. So it seems to me that the literal, actual persons, Adam and Moses and Aaron, but throw Aaron in here, who did and said those things that were recorded through the Holy Spirit of God in the Bible, also at the same time, there's there's this hiddenness inside of them that was recorded. And these incredible testimonies that they present of the person and redemptive work of Jesus Christ. When we have that, then we should evaluate everything we read about them with that fact Foremost, In other words, what has been selected and put into Scripture has been selected precisely because, I can't say precisely, precisely because it testifies of the Godhood and the salvation that is Christ Jesus. So recognize the intent of Scripture when studying and reading Scripture. When you're studying and reading Scripture, recognize that you are reading something that testifies of Christ. And no more, nowhere is it more obvious or more delineated, more, it's even announced than Adam and Moses. So if you're going to study those, you've got to know what you're studying. That's my point, yay a point. Okay, we've got to move along because I'm down to what, four minutes? Let me look and see if you're right. I say I have nine minutes. What's that? I'm entitled to nine minutes? Okay. 
We must move along because we're out of time for now. And what we've got to probe into the perplexing death of Moses as fast as we can from the frame of observation that it is revealing something about the death of Christ. So when we look at the death of Moses, we've got to be saying to ourselves, we are looking at the death of Christ in portrait. A dim picture, but nonetheless a picture. Okay, so not only is the death of Moses inexplicable, we can't explain it. It's an incredible mystery, shrouded in more mystery. But then the other aspect is equally enigmatic. Either the Lord God himself personally, which would mean this is the second person of the triune Godhead. This is Jesus Christ buried Moses personally and killed Moses personally, face to face. He knew him face to face. Would he kill him face to face? He absolutely would. He would say, now is the time you die. And he would accomplish that for Moses. What an incredible gift that is. That's amazingly honoring. What a gift. You may think, oh, that's bad. It's not bad. It's great. It's fantastic. And he would do it face to face. And if this is Jesus Christ doing that, and he did it personally, either he buried him then personally... Or he commissioned his archangel Michael to hide the body of Moses, Jude 9. So one of those two are true. Or all of them are true. He participated in the burial of Moses. Do you think he participated in the burial of Moses? He said, oh, Michael, you just take the body and go. Hide it. Hide it where no one will know. Well, if no one knows, does Michael know where to hide it? How would Michael know? Who selects the burial place? Obviously, Satan recognizes the death of Moses is amazing. And he's there. He attempts to interfere. So we've now got all of those questions. Why did Moses, what did he, I'm sorry, why did Satan come? What did he recognize? Moses' intimacy with respect to his relationship with God is, again, unparalleled. With perhaps the exception being who? Adam. And some might suggest also that Enoch and Aaron and Elijah and the Apostle John and Lazarus and Jonah fit in here too. And we'll have to fight that out in the coming weeks, which won't be in the next two weeks. But all of those have mystery attached to their deaths or their final days in some way. Anyway, the body of Moses is taken. Who took it? Well, most people think that Michael took it, and I'm not going to fight that. Is Christ there? Try to imagine it all, to figure it out. And, and where was it taken? Well, obviously it was taken from the mountain, Mount Nebo, so forth, so good. Now I ask some really easy questions. At the last breath of Moses, as he breathes his last, who was there? I hope I presented the case that Jesus Christ was there. Michael, the archangel, was there. And Satan, definitely there. And I also believe that there's a contingent of uh, angels, fallen and unfallen. They're all there. Watching this, God made sure it was seen. If I am right, And this would imply that the angelic realm had some understanding with regard to the importance of hiding this body of Moses that was not weakened. 
They knew why it had to be hidden, so they came. Satan knew why it had to be hidden, too, so he came. And yes, for all of you who like to play catch the teacher on the vast Internet audience, I know it will be necessary to resolve Deuteronomy 31, 1 through 6. Specifically, it says this, I can no longer go in and come out or go out and come in. That's what Moses says. He's he's starting to transfer his authority over to Yeshua, Joshua. So now I just gave away what this is all about. But he says, I can no longer go out and come in. Why can't he no longer go out and come in? What does that mean? Can he no longer go out and come in because God said, you can no longer go out and come in? Or is there some physical infirmity? There's a physical infirmity, as most commentators say, oh, he's worn down. Reconcile that with he's not reduced, he's not weak, he can see for hundreds of miles on top of a mountain. How much air is up there? How big is the mountain? What's the breathing like? Just wondering. Uh, He also says, the Lord said to me, you shall not cross over the Jordan, Deuteronomy 31.2. Well, why doesn't he get to cross over the Jordan? What's so special about the Jordan? Obviously, something's really special about the Jordan. Moses tells Israel that he cannot cross the river Jordan. It's a barrier to him, which descends from Adam, Joshua 3.16. So I have Moses and Adam attached to the river Jordan. Why are they both attached to the river Jordan? That might explain something. Should I expect them both to be attached to the river Jordan? Oh, of course I would. Why does God prohibit the one who has the stone tablets, who came down from the mountain, note the mountain theme, with the Ten Commandments, why is he not allowed to cross the Jordan River? Somehow this testifies of Christ, doesn't it? How is that so? Now we know, Matthew 17, 1 through 3, that Moses is resurrected. Because we see him in Matthew 17, 1 through 3. If it is a body resurrection and not some sort of apparition. But I think it's a body resurrection. Because the body resurrection of Moses proves existence. And keep in mind, Moses was recognized as was Elijah. Peter knew who they were. How did they know? How did he know? Had a picture of Moses in his wallet. Say, hey, I got a picture. Oh, wait a minute. Thousands. Of... I got to deal with that. Didn't have photographs. Moses and Elijah had to say who they were. Peter had to ask, as Peter being Peter would go, who are you guys? Why are you here? How did you get here? Oh, it's Moses and Elijah. Moses is obviously reunited with his body, which then brings Revelation 11.7 and Revelation 11.11.12 into the arena. That's the two witnesses, in case you were wondering. The breath of the spirit of life, Genesis 2.7.7.22, enters into the bodies of Moses and Elijah. In 11, 11, 12, Revelation. I mentioned this to preclude anyone listening, probably down to three or four people listening now, from thinking this is going to be an easy-peasy puzzle to complete. It is not. Ultimately, this is existence again. The body resurrection proves existence. Anyway, omniscient God in the flesh hides the body of Moses. Why is he doing this? Who is he hiding it from? Most people think Satan I don't think so. I think Satan sees him die. He didn't hide the the body of Moses. Satan comes with a full force. He knows it's going to happen. He's coming to contest the hiding of Moses' body, isn't he? He doesn't want the body to be hidden. Satan wants the unweakened body to be seen by Israel. 
Because instead of Israel burying Moses or Elijah, both of those were taken by God himself. And they show up again, in my view, in Revelation 11. Israel cannot know. They don't get to see a dead body to witness. They have to believe God that Moses is dead. They can't prove it. They got no body. If you went into court with no body and you say, well, God killed him, I think that would be a terrible prospect. I don't believe you would prevail. There is no dead body to bury. They mourn for 30 days. They're supposed to mourn for seven days, but they mourn for 30 days. Why is that? It's probably just arbitrary. If Satan had the body, what would he do? He'd do lots of things. But one of the things he would do is he'd, what? Show the body. And then what would he say? I killed the body. Wouldn't he? Would Satan claim that he's the killer of Moses if he had the body? What would that get him? Is that the real reason? Oh, that's a little tiny piece. I'll finish with this today. Everybody says, fantastic, he's shutting up now. What does you shall not cross over the Jordan mean? What does that mean? Do you think it means you shall not cross over the Jordan? Or does it have some meaning that is far higher in level? Same with I can no longer go out and come in. Does that mean I just don't feel good? Or is there something higher level than that? Why does Moses end at 120 years? And I'm aware of what everyone thinks it means, but I don't think it means that. I don't think it means what you think it means. So that's where I stop today, mercifully. So we'll see you on September the 13th, if the Lord tarries and the creeks don't rise.